as we again welcome those visiting among us today. Hear now the word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. We are so caught up into the moments of our lives, pressures, responsibilities, griefs, joys, burdens, the burden to be successful. The focus of our mind can be so much here that we forget about why we are here, why we are living, what we really value. We saw that last week in the pearl of great price and the kingdom of God being likened to that and to the treasure buried in the field, that Christ himself is that treasure. Christ is that pearl. Christ is the one who satisfies. And now today, as a follow-up to this, we see a parable of exhortation and warning. In the midst of a culture that places the stress on right now, we are reminded, as R.C. Sproul, that right now does count For eternity. Our lives count now because we are creatures made in the image of God. You have been loved by God before the foundation of the world. You have been chosen in Christ. You have a destiny to be with the Lord forever. Right now counts forever. The things we do today will go with us into eternity for good or ill. The choices we make, the words we speak, our God is listening He is active. He's not passive. He's near to us. And this warning in particular in this parable today is for those who have been familiar with Jesus their whole life. I grew up in a Christian home. I thank God for that. I never know a day when I didn't know and love Christ. I thank God for that. But there is a danger, as Kevin DeYoung says, that familiarity can breed unbelief. That's what this parable is about. 
It's talking to churchgoers. Jesus here is with the disciples, not the large crowds. And the prayer is, God, instead of self-protection and blame-shifting and indifference and apathy and boredom, shake me out of my spiritual slumber that I would see and enjoy Christ, that I would know the love of Christ for me, that I would be driven outward from being curved in on me, upward to Jesus again and again. Oh, God, help. First, the parable. There's a story told, and it's a true story, back in the late 1980s that two men in Israel on the Sea of Galilee saw when the day of that climate was really dry in that day, a couple of things sticking out of the mud. What were they? Well, it turned out to be a fishing vessel dating back to the time of Christ, the same type of fishing boat that the fishermen that Jesus was speaking to here would have used. Remember these disciples' kids? Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishermen by trade. Maybe you enjoy fishing. Maybe you don't. But that's what this, these guys did for their livelihood. And Jesus uses something from their life, from their calling, and tells a parable from that. Isn't that astounding in his amazing grace to them and to us? So you guys are fishermen, he says. You're by the Sea of Galilee. They're most likely by Capernaum here when he's giving this parable. And you've got a drag net, a vertical net pulled behind a boat or stretched between boats and maybe put on shore with a boat and people are coming along helping hold the net. And all of a sudden you would gather all sorts of fish and you'd bring that net onto the beach and you'd see what's in there, kids. Have you ever fished with a net? Maybe down at a lake you fish and you find what is going to be in here, minnows and Maybe some strange little bugs are in there and some dirt and some mud and maybe a crayfish. Well, the net would catch everything. There are 20 types of edible fish, or not all of them edible, 20 types of fish altogether in the Sea of Galilee. Some you couldn't eat. So some of them they'd get and they're trash. They're diseased or they're bony or they're unclean according to the law of Moses and they'd throw those off to the side. But others, they would keep good fish, like a nice walleye. It almost brings tears to your eyes. It's golden, and you think of the filet, and you think of how good that'll taste. You're going to keep that guy. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. There's a lot of similarities here to a previous parable, the wheat and the weeds. But there's also some differences. One of the differences is this. The casting of the net of the gospel is to go far and wide. We preach Christ and him crucified to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The net goes out as we are excited about a church building in Edina, Lord willing. This is something to pray ahead of time. Pray for opportunities for us to bring the gospel to the neighborhoods and the community around there. Pray for God to prepare the hearts of those who are there. Pray for a door to be opened for us. Pray that Christ might be taught. Pray that the Spirit would work in hearts. Pray that unbelievers would come to saving faith in Jesus. Pray for that, loved ones. Pray that we might have the opportunity this week to tell someone of the Son of God made man, crucified for us under Pilate, bearing our curse of our sin, risen from the dead, reigning and returning. 
Do you know that 86% of those who visit a church come because they're invited by someone they know? 86%. Pray that we might open our mouth this week to tell others of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. The net goes forth. Fish of every kind. God, bring hungry fish here. Bring us to feed upon the word of God. Men and women, boys and girls, rich and poor, every color of skin, singles and married, educated and uneducated, all sorts of people are scooped into this dragnet of the gospel, and that's who we are as a church. We're not one type or one clique or one segment, but the gospel goes to all. And we need to ask questions like, God, help me. Help me not to avoid certain people because maybe I have something in my heart that doesn't want to talk to them. Help me not to be more discriminant than God. Open up opportunities. Because the net will be gathering all sorts of fish, but not all the fish are believers, right? That's what the parable says. And this is where it's like the wheat and the weeds. Satan, an enemy, puts weeds in the midst of the visible church. And it will be that way until the return of Christ. There will be true converts and false converts, true believers and counterfeit unbelievers, those who are regenerate and those who aren't, in the visible external covenant community, even as the invisible church, the internal covenant, the elect of God, cannot lose their salvation, cannot be brought out of Christ, and they are mixed in together. That's what's happening in these parables. What does that mean for us? To pray for patience, not to be complacent, to protect the peace and purity of the church by the Spirit of God, but to remember the church is imperfect. It will be until the return of Jesus. And at that return, at the coming of the Lord, the angels, who are the fishermen, will separate the good fish from the bad. That's what it's saying. The wheat from the tares. The sheep from the goats. This parable is pointing you there. It's pointing me there that the ropes will be pulled up. The net will be drugged to shore. Those who embrace Christ by faith will be brought into eternal glory. Those who denied him will be judged forever. A judgment day will come. The parable is pointing us to that day. As one Orthodox Presbyterian church pastor says, we are being watched. Every day God's eye is on us. We read James 3, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers. God listens to every word we speak. He knows every desire of our hearts. He knows you and I better than we know ourselves. This could be our last Lord's Day or next week, or next year, or in 50 years. But whether it's soon, or from our perspective, long, one day we will meet the Lord. It will not be random. It is appointed in God's book. Our funeral and our burial will come. We had a graveside service recently, Fort Snelling, all sorts of tombstones, as far as the eye can see. We cannot opt out. That day cannot be delayed. It cannot be postponed. The dragnet of death is coming through the waters. Every one of us will be held accountable for our life. 
Sproul says, there are likely people here today, in person or online, who are not in the kingdom of heaven. It breaks our heart that this person has missed the most valuable thing, the pearl of great price. Today is the day of salvation. One day it will be too late. Cast yourselves on Jesus for mercy. Because when we die, we will be arraigned before the judge of the earth. Those who have trusted in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, when you and I die, our soul will go to heaven. Our body will still be united to Christ, resting in the grave until the resurrection. So when you go to a funeral, this pastor says, you see a body in a casket, you don't say, that isn't Joe. Your body is part of you. You are body and soul. As a believer, one day your body will be resurrected in glory. One day when Christ returns, your body and spirit will be reunited. You will stand alive on the earth again. We will be judged for every deed, every spoken word, the secrets of our hearts. For the Christian, there is no terror for this day. Because Christ is your righteousness. Because for the believer, the final judgment, in a sense, has already happened for you. When Christ paid for your sins on the cross, when he earned the righteousness you and I need to stand before a holy God. No condemnation for those in Christ. You will enter glory. The fullness of joy awaits. Rejoicing and assurance and confidence is yours today, believer, in Christ. For the wicked who have never repented of their sin, who have never turned to Jesus, the only Savior of sinners, this parable is teaching they will be justly judged and condemned. It is what every one of us deserves. Hell is real. It is determined. It is permanent. Today is the day of salvation. That day it's too late. It's terrible. It's not the absence of God. It's the presence of the eternal wrath of God. It is gnashing of teeth. It is furnace of fire. It is pain so intense we cannot stand it. It is anguish and regret and a bodily pain that cannot be explained. Every eye will be opened, but hearts will not be softened. Anger and hatred will continue. There will be fake tears. Much like there's fake repentance and fake tears now, those tears will not be godly sorrow. It's not a place to party. It's a terrifying judgment, which is why unbelievers try to suppress the reality, enslaved to idols, trying to avoid and dull the truth that God will bring to judgment every evil. We should be sober, and we ask today, where are we? Is Christ our treasure? Is he our Savior? Right now counts forever. Hell is real, but there is a place of safety. His name is Jesus. He has quenched the flames of hell for all who trust him. A Savior is there. He has borne that wrath that we deserve in our place, bearing our shame as the man of sorrows. He said it is finished. Please don't leave today without having trusted in Jesus if you have never trusted him by faith. Heaven is real. The reward of heaven is Christ himself. 
He is the pearl of great price. All the springs of eternal life are in him. Believe on him and his finished work. What a day of rejoicing. What an eternity of glory awaits. You will be gathered into the Lord's arms by his angels. You are righteous in Christ. You are those good fish because of Christ's grace to us. Eternal life where pain and tears are gone. Have you understood these things, Emmaus wrote? Have I? Jesus says to the disciples that very thing. They said yes. No, they weren't perfectly understanding them, nor are we. They will later struggle like we do. But Christ holds on to them. And he says here, you see now dimly, then you will see face to face. And he gives a final parable. He says, okay, we need to bring out the treasure, what is new and what is old. Interesting parable, isn't it? Verse 52. In a sense, there are things that are maybe new to us today that we haven't heard from the Bible. There are things that we've known our whole life long, new and old. The Old Testament and new, promise and fulfillment. The New Testament is in the old, concealed. The Old Testament is in the new, revealed. All of it points to Christ. All of it shows us there is a Savior for sinners. All of it reminds us God is holy, holy, holy. And there is a substitute who loves you. Jesus is that one, the Son of God. Treasures are there. Digging deep into the word of God, the promises of salvation, the covenant promises of God from Genesis to Revelation that are yes and amen in Christ. The whole of our life is now brought under the control of Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is what these parables are about. The reign and the power of God that's spreading to every corner of the globe, that is spreading into the hearts of God's people through Christ who is the king. Sin is being curved in on me. By God's grace and spirit, every day I need to hear the gospel to be driven out of self-preoccupation to Jesus, to cry out to him for mercy, to ask, what am I seeking? What am I loving? What am I fearing? What am I trusting? Where am I taking refuge? What voices am I listening to? Where am I setting my hopes? Questions that don't drive us to introspection but bring us to repent and to look outward to the only Savior of sinners, to see him who is lovely and beautiful, to gaze upon his glory and be transformed into his image, to meditate on his love and to grow in love, to delight in his generosity and kindness and by the Spirit to grow in generosity and kindness. It's what we heard earlier from Reeves and Sibs in 2 Corinthians 3.18. What is our response? Jesus goes from the parable, secondly, to the response of a sad illustration, actually, of many of these things that he has just taught in the parables being true of those in his hometown. All of these parables are leading now to how will they and how will we respond. Luke chapter 4 gives a much more expansive narrative. You can turn there if you will. 
It's the same event, but it's describing it in its fullness. So imagine Jesus giving these parables. He goes now from Capernaum, probably 25 miles to Nazareth, to his hometown. Maybe 500 people are there. Luke 4, 16. It's the synagogue. It's the, at that point, Saturday Sabbath. In a synagogue, there were no places of sacrifice or altars, but it was a place of instruction. There would be maybe 10 families or more. There'd be hundreds of synagogues maybe in Jerusalem. They would sing psalms. They would pray. They would read the law and the prophets. And then an exposition. There were visitors who would be invited to speak at times. The drama of this is tremendous. Because here, Jesus is there, and there's a set reading for that day. He's the visitor. He's asked to speak. Can you imagine being in church on Sunday when Jesus is preaching? (laughs) Well, that happened that day. It's not going to happen today. Well, his word is his preaching to us, but you know what I mean. One day we will see him in glory. And when we hear his word, it is him speaking to us, isn't it? As if he's here. But it's a fallible man, not him. What part of the Bible will he read? Well, Isaiah 61. They would hand him a scroll. Isaiah would be on that whole scroll. He would pick it up and he would read it. The context of this is referring to the the year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25. And the sermon would be two verses long that day. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The poor get good news preached. The captives and oppressed are freed. The blind will see. Images of freedom. He's proclaiming good news to the poor. Those who are in economic poverty and those who are spiritually poor. He's reminding us that he, the Lord Jesus, who is rich, became poor that we, by his poverty, might become rich. He's preaching good news to captives, to those who are oppressed. In Isaiah's day, the oppression of the Babylonians. In the first century, the Romans were there. The kingdoms of David and of Judah and of Israel were not reunited. The rebuilt temple was a shadow of what it once was. But it's much more than the economic oppression of Rome. Jesus is saying, I'm dealing with slavery to sin. I'm dealing with oppression where someone is enslaved to the devil and sin is imprisoning the mind and enslaving the heart. I'm dealing with those who have been sinned against. I'm coming in a way that no one else can come to deal with what no one else can deal with. I am the Messiah. I'm here to give recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus healed blind people over and over. And he's also speaking of the spiritual blindness. That the God of this world has blinded the heart of the unbeliever from seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's preaching the gospel. He is the gospel. He's the only one who should ever preach himself. And he did. He stops reading Isaiah 61. The scroll is rolled up. He hands it to the attendant, Luke 4. He sits down. He is not done. He's just beginning. No notes are passed. No one is going to the bathroom. No iPhones are being checked. No Twitter feeds are being read. What's he going to say? 
He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture, Isaiah 61, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, to be the son of God in the flesh, to be the one they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. To be the one who is the son of David, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. All of the scriptures here, he is God in the flesh. The year of Jubilee is happening, the Jubilee that never happened in the Old Testament in this way. He has empowered us by his spirit to proclaim the gospel today as well, to care for the poor the oppressed, those who are struggling with emotional and physical illness and sorrow and grief. The people are astonished. Luke tells us, and Matthew does as well. They say, where did this man get this wisdom? At first it appears they are hearing this by faith, that they are about to trust him. But then a change, and Luke's gospel brings it out even more. This is amazing. But it's all the more amazing when we consider where he's from. Because the questions now begin to be centered upon, who is this guy? This is Joseph's son. Joseph may be dead by this point. They actually don't say Joseph. They say the carpenter's son. We've known him our whole life. We grew up with him. We perhaps saw him day after day for many years in Nazareth. He is claiming to be God's anointed They took offense at him, Matthew says. It's scandalous, they say. Jesus says, I know what you're thinking. He knows what we're all thinking. You're thinking, okay, you did something at Capernaum, miracles. Do them here now for us. They're not really believing he did the miracles. They're not believing he can do them there. They're gripped with unbelief. They want an earthly kingdom, not the heavenly kingdom. Jesus says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It is not mere ignorance that hinders men, Calvin said, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. They're upset. They're jealous. They're saying, this guy, doesn't he know his place? Doesn't he know where he's from? He's from Nazareth. He's crazy. He's a lunatic. And Kevin DeYoung reminds us, it is the danger of religious complacency and presumption that we see in our own hearts right here. It happens to many who grew up in the Christian faith. He says they get just enough of Jesus, enough of the real thing that they're immune to it. They're familiar with Jesus, he says, but they don't really trust him. They don't love him. They don't adore him. It's maybe a doctrinal thing, but there's no heart of worship. As parents and as pastors, this is perhaps one of the most clear warnings in the Bible. That as parents, we instruct our kids in the Christian faith, but the danger is we don't really believe it. And then we come down hard with moralism. And we don't point them to Christ, and we beat them up. And then they're thinking Christianity is just about trying harder and being better, and mom and dad don't really love me, and I don't know if God loves me. I'm not ever sure I've been told that. Do you see what can happen here? We can turn inward. We can drive our kids away from Christ. Our kids may go away from Christ because of their own sin. We don't blame 
ourselves, loved ones, in a way that is not right. But are we so familiar with Jesus that we lose sight of him, DeYoung says. G.K. Chesterton. There are two ways of getting home. One of them is to stay there and appeal to all of us, covenant children in particular. Are you willing to stay there? Meaning here, the Christian faith, the word of God, Jesus as the only savior of sinners. The Christian faith you've been taught since the time you're in diapers. There are few things more dangerous than being bored with Jesus. DeYoung goes on. The first generation wins the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation loses the gospel. We see that throughout history. A pattern of unbelief where we are amazed at all sorts of things that God made. That's good. Sports and food and being outside. I love osprey. We were talking to someone who was an osprey expert this week, seeing them fly and feed their babies and that should lead us to praise the Lord who made the osprey, who upholds the osprey. That we are to love and be amazed by Jesus way more than the baseball game, even as we thank God for the baseball game. Familiarity can breed unbelief. DeYoung says, some of the most strident, vehemently anti-Christian voices you and I know, whether it's in a circle of friends a network of relationships, people online, or stories we read about are those who grew up in the church and have since left it behind. It's especially unsettling if that's a description of our kids or grandkids. It's heartbreaking. And we pray that today is the day of salvation, that God will bring them to Christ we never stop praying. We never lose hope. We cry out, God, have mercy on them. Have mercy on me. Help my unbelief. And yet we're not entirely surprised because the same thing happens in Jesus' day with him. Many of those who had the hardest time believing in him were the ones who were around him the longest. Jesus says, because of your unbelief, Nazareth, the word of God's going elsewhere. It happened in the days of Elijah. He was sent to the widow at Zarephath. It happened in the days of Elisha. He went to Naaman. A picture of the nations coming to Christ. A picture of the great commission to come, but also a picture of Israel's unbelief. Their hardness of heart. Their refusal to repent. Their stiff-necked pride and self-will. Oh God, save me from my hardness of heart. From my self-righteousness of always being right, of always having to have the last word, of not crying out to Jesus for grace, of not loving one another as you have loved me. Forgive me for not believing that you love me, O God. Have mercy. Their heart is hard. They're accusing others. Mark tells us Jesus could do no mighty work there. Mark 6. He laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. The unbelief in Nazareth is so strong he refuses because of their unbelief. He never returns to Nazareth in his life to speak these words of salvation again. He comes to his own, his own receive him not, John 1. It's a judgment against unbelieving Israel. It's a picture of the gospel going to the nations. And there are no known converts from Nazareth in the New Testament. J. 
James and his brother Jude, both half-brothers, and some of his other siblings will believe. But at this point, they didn't. They would later write the book of James and Jude. One of them would be martyred. This happens to entire congregations where the gospel hasn't been heard for years or generations, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three. The building is there. Christ has long left it. The lampstand has been removed. Ichabod. This is not just something back then, loved ones, that happens. When a people reject Jesus, he will leave. Luke tells us they're filled with rage. They are going to do something about Jesus. At first, it was welcome home. And now, a mob of people wanting to kill him. When someone understands who Jesus is and why he came, there is no neutrality. They are not convicted of their sin and driven to the only Savior who is there in their midst. They are about to kill the Messiah. Jesus, the salvation you proclaim, these other people need out there, they need it, but they don't deserve it. This salvation you proclaim, Jesus, we deserve it, but we don't need it. Lost in self-righteousness, which is being more concerned and motivated by the knowledge of the sin in someone else than my own. God, forgive me for self-righteousness. Cast that on Christ. He forgives that. Open my eyes to behold Jesus. This is a sermon to churchgoers. A churchgoer who is treating their husband or wife in a rotten way, physically, verbally, emotionally. A churchgoer who is enslaved to alcohol. A churchgoer who is enslaved to pornography. A churchgoer who is worshiping entertainment. Our soul shrinks to the size and quality of our pleasures. Our capacity to see the glory of God is shriveled. Our soul becomes small. We don't delight in God. As one person says, we need to be reminded that Jesus came for all of those sins. He brings us by his grace to repent of them all, to flee to him for mercy. Here's a picture someone uses. It's before church. Your five-year-old wants to make chocolate milk. They start to pour the chocolate, and it gets on their shirt. And before mom or dad can see it, they try to scrub it out with the washcloth. And the stain begins to spread. And now it's all over the front of the shirt. And it's on the pants, and it's dripping on it down the shoes. And the stain gets bigger. That's what happens when we try to clean up ourselves. It gets worse and worse. We think, well, I can stop sinning. No, we can't. Christ and him alone can save us and sanctify us. Your father loves you. He sent his son to save you, to change you, to absorb what your sin and my sin deserves, that by his blood we are really washed clean. That chocolate is gone. It's not external, it's in the heart. By his righteousness I stand before the throne of God, bold and joyful. I enjoy the Lord today. I rejoice in the Lord today. The mob tries to kill him. It's not his time to die. He passes through them, Luke says, 
entirely in control of the situation. We don't know how that happened, but the Spirit of God is at work. Passes through a mob, right? They don't touch him because that's not his time to die. He went away. Jesus reads and expounds the scriptures to them. He applies the scriptures to them. He removes the scriptures from them. Who is this man? He is the Lord Jesus. He reminds us that this message is either good news or bad news. Right now counts forever. Bad news for the unrepentant. Good news for sinners who by an apprehension of his love for us in Christ fall down and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who took away my sin. Behold, my Savior. Behold, Jesus, the only Savior of sinners. Behold the cross. Behold his loveliness. Emmaus wrote, Behold his beauty. And gazing upon him, we all are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. Let's stand and sing of this great Savior and this 